This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. Our reading this evening is 2 Timothy and chapter 1, the second epistle of Paul the Apostle to Timothy and chapter 1. We've got some friends outside. Uh, uh, that's the one to hear the gospel. Uh, Timothy chapter 1 commencing at verse 1 Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus to Timothy my dearly beloved son grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded 
that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. And as ever, we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our first study in the second letter of Paul to Timothy. We've recently completed a study of his first letter to Timothy, and I hope that we will also be able to study his letter to Titus before the end of the year. As I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often jointly referred to as the pastoral epistles, possibly not only because they are addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith. We know that they both had pastoral responsibility, Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the Isle of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in God's sight. Three weeks ago in our last study, we considered the final chapter of 1 Timothy, <coughs> or 1 Timothy. And we saw then, did we not, that godliness with contentment is great gain. There were false teachers at Ephesus who taught that gain equated to godliness. That's what they thought. But Paul emphasised to Timothy that it was in fact the other way round. We bring nothing with us when we're born into this world and any material possessions that we acquire, we leave behind when we die. So what's the point of spending our time here trying to lay up treasure on earth? So many people have fallen into temptation in their pursuit of the riches of this world. And we saw in our last study how the love of riches, not riches, but the love of riches, is the root of all evil. Believers are to go in the opposite direction, to seek to lay up treasure in heaven, to follow after those things which promote godliness. And if believers are blessed with this world's goods, they should be willing to help those who are less well off. We saw in our last study how Paul charged Timothy to keep securely that which had been entrusted to him, namely the truth of the gospel of God's grace and the doctrine accompanying it. 
And we also saw how important it is for us to keep securely that which has been committed to our charge. And we must never be complacent, for we have seen how once sound fellowships have departed from the truth. We must ever be on our guard against the introduction of anything that would cause us to err concerning the faith. And we must ever think that what has happened elsewhere could never happen to us. Tonight we shall be considering the whole of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and I trust that we shall see today the importance of children being catechised at home, of being given spiritual instruction by their parents or sometimes their grandparents. And I trust also that we will once more see how believers are saved by grace and not in any way by works. I also trust that we will see how we need to persevere in the Christian life, for it is a sad fact that some people have departed from Christ when persecution has arisen. Well, we see Paul opening his second letter with a reminder that he was an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy knew better than most that Paul was an apostle, but the apostolic seal on the letter served as a reminder to Timothy that what Paul was writing wasn't something that could be dismissed as merely well-meant advice. What Paul wrote was to be given very serious consideration and any instructions were to be followed. Furthermore, it was doubtless intended that the letter was to be read by others apart from Timothy, who would be able to see for themselves that it carried the weight of an apostle. We see that Paul was an apostle by the will of God. He'd been specially chosen by God for that role, despite the fact that once he had been a sworn enemy of the early church. Such is the grace of God to sinful men. God has promised eternal life to all those who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God chose Paul to preach the gospel of grace, proclaiming that gracious promise to the Gentiles, we see that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. And we see once more, do we not, the great affection that the apostle had for his son in the faith when we read these words. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a wonderful thing when men who are more experienced in God's service are able to help those who are less well established, both with godly advice and with prayer. And we can be sure that when Paul wrote of grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, he had already often pleaded with God in prayer that Timothy might be the beneficiary of such spiritual blessings. We see this confirmed, do we not, 
in what Paul wrote next. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Paul rejoiced that he was able to intercede on Timothy's behalf. He thanked God that he could do just that. He did it in love, also as part of his Christian service. Paul wanted to serve God in everything that he did with a pure conscience. And he realised that in serving God faithfully, he was following in the footsteps of Old Testament saints. His forefathers, he knew that he himself had been privileged to understand how all those things that were promised to his believing forebears had now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted Timothy to know that he habitually remembered him in prayer, both night and day. Paul was in prison at this time. No doubt he spent many hours in prayer there, both for those who, like him, were in bonds for the cause of Christ, but also for those who were yet at liberty and perhaps were struggling to maintain a faithful testimony. When Paul last saw Timothy in the flesh, it's very possible that their parting had been marked with tears. And perhaps Paul had those tears in mind when he wrote of how much he desired to see him again. It would have been a joyful reunion, though we can't be certain that Paul ever saw Timothy again this side of eternity. But Paul was often comforted in his heart when he thought of Timothy's coming to faith referring to that fact when he wrote this, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. We see that Timothy's faith was an unfeigned faith, meaning that it was a true faith. It was sincere. It was genuine as opposed to a pretend faith. And you know, this leads us to the conclusion that there is such a thing as an insincere faith, which in turn prompts us to consider how we might be able to tell the difference. One thing that springs to mind is that those who have a sincere faith will witness to that faith by the lives that they live. Their way of life will match up to their profession. Now, that isn't foolproof since it is possible to appear to live a godly life whilst one's heart isn't truly right with God. But I think we can say with some certainty that those who take no care to live lives that are pleasing to God cannot have had that change of heart and outlook that characterises true conversion. And so we have this question tonight. Is it true of all of us that we have? and unfeigned faith. Now we know from Acts chapter 16 and verse 1 that Timothy's mother was a Jewess, though his father was a Gentile. Nonetheless, Timothy's mother Eunice, no doubt helped by her mother Lois, had taught Timothy from God's word from his childhood. We know this, we'll come across it later, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 
verse 15, where Paul says this of Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy's mother and his grandmother were believers, but many feel that his father couldn't have been on the premise that Paul would have mentioned him if he had been saved. Well, whatever may have been the case, it seems to have been Timothy's mother, very likely also his grandmother, who took care to instruct Timothy from the word of God. And they can be considered examples for us to follow all Christian parents with the help of believing grandparents where appropriate should be teaching their children from the word of God as soon as is practical. Most parents want to do what's best for their children and to some parents this would mean teaching them good values, ensuring that they are well nourished, well educated, hoping that they will turn out to be well adjusted adults. But parents who are believers have an additional and overriding priority. They will want to do all that they can to point their children to the Saviour, both by their personal witness and by instructing them from the Word of God. We cannot save our children. We cannot do this. But we can point them to Christ. Timothy had benefited from a godly upbringing and had come to faith in Christ himself. And others had recognised that he had the qualities required in Christian leaders and he had been ordained to the ministry when Paul laid apostolic hands on him. And Paul recognised the importance of Timothy carrying on as he had started out, which is why he said this, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. As we have noted previously, it does seem that special gifts were imparted to chosen men when the apostles laid their hands on them, perhaps at their ordinations. And when we considered 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, we saw at that time how Paul told Timothy this, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And I suggested at that time that Timothy was specially gifted to expound the word of God. And if that is so, if that was so, then Paul here in 2 Timothy was exhorting Timothy to make the best use of his gift. He had previously told him not to neglect it, and now he is telling him to stir it up meaning that Timothy should vigorously exercise it. Men may be gifted, but unless they exercise those gifts, they will be of little or no profit. So is it possible that Timothy had become somewhat complacent in his ministry? Or is it possible that he wasn't as fervent in his gospel preaching and his exposition of the word of God as he used to be. And I ask this because of what accompanied Paul's exhortation to his son in the faith. Paul wrote this, Stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands, 
For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. It may well be that life was becoming somewhat difficult for Timothy at Ephesus and that he might have been tempted to be less zealous in his ministry than he had been than that he had been because of this but Paul reminds him that neither of them had been given a spirit of fearfulness by God but rather a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind we need to remember that Paul was in prison at that time because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And he knew more than most what Timothy needed to strengthen him if he was to persevere when persecution arose. Timothy needed to be convinced that God's power would strengthen him and help him to endure adversity. Love for believers and also love for the unlovely would constrain him to be faithful to his charge. And his renewed mind, his sound mind, would help him to exercise self-control and self-discipline. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, said Paul, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. As we shall see before we close, Paul was well aware that there were some men who would actually wilt under pressure and would deny the Lord whom they have once claimed to have bought them. Men would become ashamed to be associated with those like Paul who had been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, being unwilling to suffer affliction for the Lord's sake themselves. Now, before we condemn any such people out of hand, let us be sure that we would be willing to pay whatever price was required if times of persecution were to arise in this country. You know, there was a time in this country where people were burnt at the stake just because they believed the very same things that we believe. Although we know that some escaped death by denying what they had once professed to be true wonder what we would do if we were in such circumstances. We may feel that we might be amongst the first to give in under pressure. But look carefully at the words at the end of verse 8 of our chapter. According to the power of God. According to the power of God. We will be able to partake of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. It's the power of God alone that will sustain believers in times of persecution. Now I mentioned just a moment ago that there have been those who escaped death by denying what they had once professed to be true. But you know, some of them, perhaps just a few, did repent of their cowardice. There was a man called Thomas Bilney. He was such a man and he was eventually burnt at the stake. He was overcome with shame because of his earlier denial of the truth. And I wonder what it was that gnawed away at his conscience until he could no longer maintain 
pretense. Well, the history books tell us that the main stand that he had taken was against what's known as the veneration or worship of relics. For he firmly believed that salvation came through faith and not through works in any way. And we see this truth before us now, do we not, in verse 9, where Paul writes of how God has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And if you examine that verse carefully, you'll see what we might say is the passivity of men in their salvation and the activity of God. It is God who has saved us, not we ourselves. It is God who has called us all into his kingdom, not because of any merit on our own part, but solely according to his own purpose and grace. Now, I can't see how anyone can read this verse and not conclude that salvation is of the Lord. As unbelievers, we were truly dead in trespasses and sins and were only able to respond to the gospel call because we were quickened by God the Holy Spirit. Moreover, we see from this verse and elsewhere in the scriptures that our salvation was actually planned by God before the foundation of the world. God purposed to be gracious to his elect through the redeeming blood of the Saviour before the first human being ever walked upon the face of the earth. According to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, in case you think that that's just an isolated verse in the Bible, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, where Paul wrote these words. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And there are many other verses that I could take you to which show how God's plan of redemption was made before the world began. But this evening, I want us to see what God expects from those he has chosen. Not just the fact that he has chosen the people, but what God expects from those whom he has chosen. We've just seen from Ephesians how God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And we can see from verse 9 of 2 Timothy 1, our passage tonight, that God has called us with an holy calling, meaning not just that he who has called us is holy, but that we are called to live holy and obedient lives. We rightly rejoice in the doctrine of election, for thereby we give God all the glory for our salvation. And we also rejoice in the security of that divine promise that tells us that none of Christ's sheep will ever be plucked from his hand. But we must ever see what God requires of his elect. And this is what Paul wanted to remind Timothy of in this second letter to him. Timothy was to remain steadfast 
not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of Paul's bonds, willing, if need be, to suffer affliction for the sake of the gospel, relying on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to see him through. Timothy had a glorious gospel to proclaim. He could testify of how the promised Messiah had come to redeem his people. God's plan of redemption was made before the world began and was revealed in part in the Old Testament. But Paul could now write that it had now been made manifest, made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought light, life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, as is evident from the Apostle Peter's first epistle, Old Testament saints had what we might call an incomplete knowledge of God's plan of redemption in Christ. Take a look at 1 Peter 1 and verses 9 to 12. 1 Peter 1 verses 9 to 12, where the Apostle Peter wrote these words. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what matter, manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. That was uh, how Old Testament saints uh, stood, but New Testament saints such as Paul and Timothy could testify of how God's plan had now been made manifest with the coming of the Lord Jesus, who by his death and resurrection had been victorious over death. The gospel message reveals that those who repent and are converted will have new life in Christ and will dwell with him forever when they pass from this world. For the Lord Jesus Christ hath abolished death and hath brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, the gospel was of paramount importance to Paul and he wanted it to be similarly of paramount importance to Timothy. Having spoken of the gospel, Paul wrote this, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And implicit in what Paul said was a reminder to his son in the faith, Timothy, that Timothy too, though not an apostle, had also been appointed by God to preach and to teach. We know from Paul's own writings and from the book of Acts that Paul saw himself primarily as someone who was committed to the propagation of the gospel. He was what we would describe as a, as a driven man, for he told the Corinthians this. He wrote, Necessity, necessity is laid upon me, Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And Paul knew, did he not, that his imprisonment was a direct result of his being a faithful 
gospel preacher, for he wrote this. He wrote, For the which cause I also suffer these things, referring to his incarceration. In any just society, to be in prison would be something to be ashamed of. But Paul wasn't in any way ashamed to be in prison for the sake of the gospel. And this is why he was able to write these words. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We know that Paul had been held by the authorities on several occasions. But when he wrote this second letter to Timothy, it's widely held that he was in bonds for the last time before he was executed. But, you know, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He had committed his future to his Saviour. He trusted fully in the one who had saved him and was convinced that Christ's commitment to him would ensure that his commitment to Christ wouldn't ever waver. No matter what might befall him, he was assured in his heart and mind that on the day of judgment, referred to as that day in the scriptures, he would be found secure in Christ. Once before, when he was in bonds, he wrote the following words, as we find them recorded in Philippians 1, verses 16 onwards. It's Philippians 1, verse 16 onwards. He wrote this, The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretence or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour, yet what I shall choose I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Well, we might picture Paul in prison, holding fast to the end, resigned to whatever God had in store for him, at peace in his soul, but grieved that some who had once taken a similar stand to him had now fallen away. He was grieved too that there were some at Ephesus who were perverting the gospel of God's grace. And this is why he charged Timothy with these words. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. As we can see from his epistles, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest teachers of all time. The soundness of his doctrine was unquestionable in spite of God. And this is why he was able to tell Timothy to follow his example, to take care not to deviate from his 
doctrinal position, though Timothy was also to take care to do so in faith and in love. Timothy's ministry needed to be exercised in a spirit of faith and love, not just with sound words, but with real care and concern for those to whom he ministered. In our final study in 1 Timothy, at the end of that first epistle, we saw that Paul wrote these words. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. And we saw then how vital the apostle felt it was for Timothy to guard that which had been entrusted to him, namely sound doctrine, the truth accompanying the the gospel of God's grace. And now we see him writing something very similar, do we not? That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Timothy was to rely on the help of the Holy Spirit to assist him in his ministry, since ministers will only remain sound in the faith whilst they are so assisted. We know that God's ministers have tremendous responsibilities and woe betide any who fail to guard that which has been entrusted to them. Now, the last two verses of 2 Timothy 1 provide us with a contrast. Verse 15, telling us of people who left when the going got tough, and the last three verses telling us about a man who shone, who shone when difficulties arose. Verse 13 recalls how Paul wrote these words, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom I find jealous and homogenes. It seems that when Paul was in prison, there were those who had once taken a stand with him, but who became afraid of being judged guilty by association, and so they departed from him. The main culprits we see were two men named Phygelus and Homogenes, of whom we know nothing but their cowardice. But we do know, do we not, others like them, men who once took a stand for the gospel, but who were unwilling to endure persecution when it arose. Now you know the Lord Jesus spoke that there would be such men like this in the parable of the sower and the seed. If you go to Matthew 13 and verses 5 and 6, you'll find there that some seed, and I quote, fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up they were scorched because they had no root they withered away. And later on in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, we see that the Lord Jesus gave an explanation of this as follows. He said, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Now, as I've already said this evening, before we condemn such people as Phygelus and Homogenes out of hand, let us be sure that we would be willing to pay whatever price was required if times of persecution were to arise in our own land. Phygelus and Homogenes were a great disappointment to Paul. But a man called Onesiphorus was a great blessing to him. The name Onesiphorus means a bringer 
of profit, a bringer of profit. And we can see that this man certainly lived up to his name. Paul wrote this. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anisiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he might find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Anisiphorus was a friend to Paul in his need which is the mark, we might say, of a true friend. Rather than distancing, distancing himself from the apostle, as others like Phygelus and Hermogenes had done, he had taken great pains to seek Paul out in his Roman prison. Onesiphorus had also been a help to Paul at Ephesus, and his family was still at Ephesus, as can be seen from verse 19 of 2 Timothy 4. We'll look at that when we come to it. Perhaps Anisiphorus had been separated from them on account of his business or perhaps for the gospel's sake. Whatever may have been the reason for his absence, we're told that he sought out Paul deliberately and diligently, providing us with an example of how to be proactive in seeking to help believers in need. Well, we come to an end of our study in 2 Timothy, our first study, and we've been reminded of the importance of catechizing children in the home. We also have been reminded of God's electing grace and that he has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And we've also considered the reaction of three men when the going got tough, by Jealous, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus. And so this question arises, whose example would we follow if times of persecution arise? Will we able to, be, to stand firm? Will we be able to say of our Saviour, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Well, may the Lord give us all the strength to be able to say just that. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com that's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.